Welcome to the Woodshop Life Podcast, a bi-weekly podcast focused on the craft of woodworking. I'm Hui Huin of the Alabama Woodworker, and I'm joined by my friends Sean Walker of Simple Cove. How's it going, Hui? I'm doing great. And Guy Dunlop of Guy's Woodshop. Guy is out for today, but he'll be back in our next episode. This podcast is intended to answer questions from the woodworking community and to give you some of our perspectives on how we get things done in our own shops. We also have a Patreon campaign, and if you'd like to show your support, we are simply asking for a small donation to cover the cost of bringing you this podcast. Please go to patreon.com forward slash woodshoplife if you'd like to show your support. And please stick around towards the end of the show. We're going to talk briefly about what we each of us have going on in our own shops. So let's get right into it. Sean, since Guy isn't here, you're up first. All right. Well, hopefully we uh, keep you all entertained with Guy not here since he is the uh, the comedic relief from we and I. So yeah. bear, bear with us for uh, this episode. <laughs> <laughs> We're a little all dry. Right. Yeah. Well, what can we do? Mm. This uh, Let's see. I got a few different questions here. So let's pick one. This is from Daniel Stickman Woodworking on Instagram. Jolly good day, Guy, Hui, and Sean. I've always found the imperfections in wood-like knots, funky grain, and discoloration to be interesting. I've decided to try and start using them more as design aspects in my projects. I'm tackling using a knot for the first time, and other than quote-unquote use epoxy, I'm at a loss as to what brand type intense. There's a myriad of options. Any recommendations on products, methods, and tents for an end table top knot in a mixed clear slash brown yellow birch? As always, thanks for sharing your knowledge. And I went back and forth with Daniel a little bit just to get a better understanding if he was trying mm-hmm. to stabilize it or or what he was trying to do and if he wanted it clear. And he said he wanted to stabilize it mostly, but I've heard that clear epoxy yellows, should I tint it dark to handle that? Well, this is a pretty good question. I, I also am a little confused or I was a little confused at when I started using some of the tinted epoxy. If mm-hmm. Can I just get a two-part epoxy? Do I got to get a special kind of epoxy? Luckily, I've always had you know some two-part epoxies, whether that is you know the, the stuff that Total Boat sells or some of the... I uh, can't think of the other name. There's, there's Total Boat. There is... Um, Moss. Yeah, Moss and... There's what's the other obvious brand that everybody's uh, yelling at their stereo at right now? Oh, uh, West Systems. Yes, West Systems. Why I've always it? used those. Oh, yelling at the stereo. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. They're, they're like West Systems. Come on. Yeah, but yeah, that's that's what I, I've I've only used. Um, mm-hmm. And to tint that, I I would recommend since the knot is dark anyway. I would, um, mm-hmm. you know, personally, I would tint it dark. But again, that's just a personal preference. So what I like to use is the trans tint dyes. Uh, you can get them, uh, and they're just a, in a little bottle that you can put a, a drop or two, main, probably just one drop, because they're you know they're pretty strong when you're putting it in a small batch of epoxy. So, for sure. um, you know, right now I've been using the Total Boat two part epoxy and the you know the two little containers that uh, you do one like I think it's one pump of one, and they got the ratio on the other ones. Actually, I think this one is automatic, so it's just one to one. But either way, whatever epoxy you get, the just follow the ratios for the hardener. Um, and I, I take a, uh, a I think I have a black transtent that I just put a drop in mm-hmm. and uh, mix it, pour it, and then wait for bubbles. And you can use uh, some heat to to get rid of the bubbles, let it dry, sand yep. it. And uh, it'll look pretty good. And it'll also stabilize it as well. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. 
and you know, depending on if it's a through non or if there's holes, you know, flip the board over, make sure you put something on the bottom, some sort of tape so that it doesn't bleed through onto your workbench or anything like that before you're pouring the epoxy. Mm-hmm. Yep. We have you have, I mean, have you used like those little two part epoxies that you can get in the little tubes or have you used anything other than, you know, the obvious of what I discussed? Yes. And I've made the mistake of using that. So I've used like a five minute epoxy. You're yeah. That's what you're talking about, right? Yes. Okay. Not the same, at least in my experience, not the same thing as say, um, a West systems, uh, by the way, there's another brand called system three. Yes. Yes. Um, yes. Uh, just to give you plenty of options there, Daniel, uh, they all work pretty much the same in that you've got your hardener and then you have your resin. And the nice thing about Moss, because I just picked up some, is that they have different, and West Systems, is that, the, I don't know about Total Boat because I haven't purchased them, is that Moss and West Systems have uh, different curing speeds or uh, set speeds. So they have like a, a slow, medium, and fast I believe, at least for the moss epoxies, the the slow is you've got about thirty minutes of working time. The medium, I think it's like twenty, and I think the fast is ten. And the fast is quite fast; like in ten minutes, it is pretty much you can't work with it anymore. And so those are nice, based on you know particularly what you're doing. If it's a relatively shallow knot or something, and you know it's not going all the way through, I might use a medium or a fat fast. And another thing you can do is you can actually, particularly if you're doing like bent laminations or things like that, um, you can dial in how much hardener you use of slow, medium, and fast. So you can actually mix them. Uh, So you can mix it like half medium and half fast and get, I don't know, like 15 minutes of of cure time or open time. Uh, and, And you can play with those things. I know a lot of like deep pour or uh folks that do a lot of epoxy and resin pour stuff uh, will play with those things yeah the other thing to keep in mind is that these things get hot oh yeah yep. they get hot they they are exothermic so they release heat um as they're being cured but i'm i'm very much like you i just like the dark i i just have a, a bottle of trans tint and i also have i bought the system three brown and system three brown, it's almost like a like a paste. It it, it it's liquid based, so it mixes in. It's it's this. It's almost the same consistency as the epoxy itself, whereas the trans tint is very thin. Uh, same thing. Uh, the trans tint that I have is black. The system three paste stuff is is brown. So I have a little bit of variation there. But I'm very much like you, Sean. I just prefer. If it's, especially if it's not just going with something darker. Yeah. And because obviously I don't have a lot of experience with, you know, too many, I don't do river table pours and all that stuff. So I don't, obviously, you know, with my experience with the, the epoxy, it's going to yellow over time. And, you know, I just throw, throw that in there just because it matches and it's not obvious. So if you throw, if you leave it, leave it in there and it, and it yellows over time or you don't want it to stand out. So it look like an eyeball with the, <laughs> with the knot in yeah. the middle. Yeah. The total boat that I'm using now, I've had it for a while and it just lasts me forever. Yeah. Um, but before that I used like we were saying the system three and I just looked it up. This stuff lasts me a long time, but the system three, I don't know what the total boat is, but system three has a 30 minute gel time. 
Yeah. Um, but you know, you're doing small knots. It's not a, not that big of a deal. Um, but I will say I like having had both the system three where I had to use these little measuring cups, having the ones with the pumps on them, man, it makes life easier. It does. It does. And I prefer that. Um, the, the, the unfortunate thing is that, uh, the pumps are, can be a little bit pricey. I think it's like $20 for the pump kit, which, you know, in the grand scheme of things, it's not that bad, but you know, for, for a set of pumps, but the benefit that you get from that is that you don't have to measure anything and there's yeah. no guesswork. Accuracy. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. I know I didn't measure those things right when I was pouring them by eye on <laughs> these little measuring cups are, they're hard to see and too small, but yeah, highly recommend that. As far as uh, if you are to measure yourself, you kind of want to go a little bit more on the hardener because there's nothing worse than not having enough hardener and then it doesn't set. Yeah. It's almost better to have a little bit more hardener. I mean, it's better just to get the ratio correct, period. But if you're going to err on one side, I'd err on the side of a little bit more hardener. Yeah, definitely agree. Yeah, I've I've had one instance where I didn't get the hardener right, and yeah, that's a nightmare. Something else that maybe might help Daniel is um, there are such things as like low viscosity epoxies that each of these companies make. Some of them call like penetrating epoxy or penetrating stabilizer. Uh, the nice thing about that is that because it's a thinner material, so let's say you have like a an inclusion or a deep crack or not that's not that in a way that you don't need it to be completely like structurally sound you can use some of that penetrating epoxy to kind of get deep and seal those pores inside and then go over top with the thicker epoxy that what that does is that it doesn't um it doesn't take the thicker epoxy and then it just like seeps all the way through and it just keeps running through yes of course Right. Of course, you want to, you know, seal off the bottom with some uh, blue painter's tape. But that penetrating epoxy helps because it seals off those pores. So like, let's say you have a deep knot or a deep inclusion, like I was saying, you won't get the air bubbles coming through. So just keep that in mind. One last question, though, I had for you. Have you and we have all seen that uh, CA glue company um, that has it tint like the different colors, CA glue? Have you used any CA glue for something like that? Other than maybe I could see myself using it for like a small, like not like a tiny, tiny, or maybe not even just a void or something like that. Mm -hmm. Have you, have you seen or used any of those CA glues for those types of purposes? Yes. And I would recommend not using them for deep inclusions or knots. I would say maybe quarter inch or smaller. Yeah, that's uh, just the, not good to, I guess, what, stack layers upon layers of that stuff? Correct. It it doesn't have the same hardness and workability, in my opinion, as the hard set epoxies. Yeah, I, I agree with you because I've used it before with the CNC and certain things. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you can tell a big difference when you're chipping that stuff off versus removing some dried epoxy. Um, I, I just don't know if I would... If I would trust that on a on a piece of furniture that I want want to outlast me and 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 all that stuff, to me it seems like the hard set epoxies, the two part resins, uh, they work more like wood. You know, they're a little bit. What I notice is that with the CA uh, 
stabilizers, the tinted stabilizers, when you start sanding them, because you're introducing a little bit of heat, they tend to kind of gum up. Hmm. Whereas uh, I don't see as much of that with, I mean, people, folks are, you know, sanding entire river tables, right? Or yeah. epoxy tables, I guess you can't say river tables. Oh, yeah. Uh, whoops. Epo- whoops. Uh, epoxy tables, you know, and uh, sanding them for long periods of time and not getting that gum up that uh, you sometimes get with like CA. Yeah. Yep. Cool. But well, but they are great. But CA is a great like small fix. So 100%. Yeah. Don't want yeah. to bad mouth it. Too. CA has their place. Don't don't get us wrong. <laughs> oh, yeah, for sure. For sure. Well, all right. Pass it off to you. We hope that helps, Daniel. Yeah. Good luck, Daniel. Uh, so this is from guess who? Brent Jarvis. Clean oh. cut woodworking. He asks a good question here. The amount of information you all have given to the community has helped out so many folks. And I'd like to say thank you for your knowledge and dedication. Well, thank you, Brent. Um, we're closing in on 100 episodes. It's quite crazy. It's been a I long know. time. I know. 94. Uh, my question is in the concerns of an L-fence. I've been hearing a lo- about them lately and would like to know if any of you have used them. From what I have seen and understand is it increases the safety of making certain cuts. Could you help us understand what an L-fence is? And if it's worth making again, thank you for all of your information you've given to all of us. Uh, yeah, I have used an L fence. I used it recently to do some tapered template cutting. And by recently, I mean like four months ago. Uh, and that's why I made the L fence. There is a great article back in 2014 by Bob Van Dyke, and he goes through uh, the different uses of an L fence. I mean, you can use it to cut rabbits. You can use it to cut some dados. One of the wonderful things to use it for is when you're making tenons and why, you know, Brent is mentioning about safety here is that you can cut tenons and the off cut because the L fence has an area where the off cut can kind of slip under the off cut of say, uh, the tenon, the cheeks of the tenon, can actually slip underneath the L fence. And so you don't get any um, uh, kickback. Yeah. Pieces kind of kicking back at you. Uh, that being said, can you do a lot of these th- other things safely without an L fence? Absolutely. Uh, one thing that you can also do is straight line ripping. Um, so you can get a scrap piece of MDF. Uh, that you attach to, say, uh, a rough edge board or a board with a live edge that you want to get rid of or a board with some heartwood or sapwood on it. And you can set up the L-fence so that it rides up against that MDF and the off cut, the piece that you're trying to rip off, slides underneath the L-fence. And again, that off cut freely hangs off once it's uh, once it's released from the board and doesn't get caught in the blade. Um, so there are some safety advantages to using an L-fence. But that being said, it you don't need to have an L-fence. I mean, I haven't had an L-fence for years, and I got by without one. But they're those, one of those tools that it's really nice to have around, and it doesn't take up a lot of space, and they're very simple to make. So check out uh, the Fine Woodworking article on how to make an L fence. 
there are a couple other articles uh, and YouTubers and blogs and whatnot on different L fences. I actually made one. I copied one from uh, somebody on. Oh, gosh. What are some of the famous forums? It's not sawdust. Um, forums. I haven't heard that word in a while. Gosh, I still I still scour them. And they're like a wood talk forum. There's, the, There's a um, wood talk forum. There's was it a, something Creek. Yes. Yeah, Sawmill Creek. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's a Sawmill Creek form. Uh, that's where I got an idea for an adjustable L fence. So the L fence attaches to the fence of the table saw, and then uh, the uh, the L fence itself can raise up and lower uh, different heights uh, with uh, an adjustable knob. It's it's a pretty cool. Uh, check it out. Uh, just. I just Google Sawmill Creek L fence. You'll, you'll find it out. You'll find it. So, um, how about you? Have you used anything like this or what's, what are your thoughts on these type of multi to multi use jigs in the shop? Well, I don't own one. I hadn't really heard of one until here recently when everybody had to have one. I look at the L fence like I do every, every other possible way of doing a certain part of a project. In other words, you can do, you know, you can do a lot of the stuff with the nail fence. You can do a lot of stuff with the tenning, tenning jig. You can do a lot of stuff with it. You know, there's multiple ways in woodworking to do just about every process of cutting wood, you know, and that's just whatever camp that you want to get, you know, get in and join. Uh, you could, you could definitely use the L fence to do a lot of these things. You could do, there's mm-hmm. a million different ways to do everything with the nail fence or a tenning jig or a dado stack or a sacrificial fence or and all that stuff. I mean, I've never used an L fence. I've been able to do everything just fine. Does it, is it useful? Absolutely. I saw one of the uh, coolest things that I saw it being used for is template routing or template cutting, but mainly for end grain, you know, cutting a piece to length using that is a heck of a lot safer and probably maybe a little bit cleaner cut than using a flush trim bit, obviously at Mm -hmm. the router table, even if you have a, have a, a spiral cutter and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. I did see that. I think it was Philip Morley that was using it to cut some chair legs to length using that same template. Right. And then he had to go back over to the router table to cut the rest of it because they were curved parts. So yep. it, me being the way that I am and the way that I think, if I knew that I had to do multiple, if I had to go back to the router table at all, I would have just attempted it using the router table to begin with. Mm-hmm. I would have you know, probably gotten the piece as close to the template size that I could, and then just used my spiral flush trim bit. Mm-hmm. Um, I've done that plenty of times. It's, it's okay, but you know, that's obviously going to leave you a cleaner cut, less chance for tear out and all that stuff. If you can use the nail fence, if you have one, I just haven't seen a need for myself to, to make or buy an nail fence. You can actually buy a nail fence. Mm-hmm. Um, that is by, I'm not knocking it at all. I, I just, I haven't seen a need for me to include it in my workflow because everything that I can see that I can do with the nail fence, I can do with other methods that I already have. Uh, just because I know that I would rather, I don't like taking the time to stop and set a jig up for, for anything. If I have a process that works, you know, that I've been doing, um, yeah. for 10 years and all that. Is it useful? Absolutely. There's probably a lot of cool things that you can do with it that I'm not even aware of because I've not looked into it. You know, that's my take on the offense. Yeah, where I saw it being used quite a bit was on lounge chairs with all the splayed legs and different angles for tapering and whatnot. And 
like you said, when it comes to cutting end grain for tapered ends, it's very safe and it's very useful because um, there's there's really no possibility of binding or uh, kickback because the offcut just freely goes underneath the fence itself. Yeah. You know, with cutting pieces to length with the L fence, I mean, there there's probably circumstances where you can't do this, but I mean, my process for any leg is, you know, using a cross cut sled or my miter gauge with a stop block, cutting them all to the same length and then putting the template on top of it and then routing the rest of it away. Um, yeah. but I mean, that's one of many, many, many uses for an L fence. I, I mean, I don't want, I don't want people to think that I'm, well, you can only use it for, for cutting pieces to length. No, there's a lot of uses. That's, I just haven't invested the time in, in, in looking at all the uses for an L fence. There's, it's, you can obviously do a lot of cool stuff with it. I just, you know, I just haven't seen the need for me to go and build or buy one. I, I hear you. I made one just to jump on the bandwagon because <laughs> well, that's how I am. Hey, but you I, use it though, right? I hadn't used it in like four months. Well, I mean, you used it once. I did. Well, you got your time's worth out of it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm, and of course, you know, I kind of made a somewhat fancy one, but yeah. Oh, of course. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, it's back to you, Sean. All right. This is from David, Dr. G Custom Woodworking. Thank you guys for everything you do with the podcast. My question for you is about tabletop flattening. My current situation is with a 42 inch by 90 inch dining room table that went a little wonky during the glue up. A couple of the boards came out of alignment with the rest, and so now the top is not flat. I know where I messed up and how to prevent this in the future, but I'm wondering what your suggestions would be to flatten the top of this size back to everything being even. I'm currently using my router slide to do this, and it is very time-consuming. Thank you in advance for your answer. Sincerely, David. I have run into a similar situation when I glued up a large tabletop and it, mm-hmm. it didn't go as planned. Uh, I came out obviously a little messed up like you're having yourself. So one of the, I guess there's a couple different ways you can use your router sled to flatten it. Or if you have a big drum sander, you can do that. But yep. the one thing that I did was I ended up ripping it down uh, where the trouble was and, you know, making two narrower pieces and then mm-hmm. edge jointing and then gluing them back together, removing the wonkiness as you, as you'll say. And what that does is uh, you have one extra glue line, but you know, it's going to save you from having to flatten that entire top. Something that size, you can probably get away with making a couple different rip cuts into making three smaller pieces. If you need to reflatten the smaller pieces before gluing them back up to kind of get them consistent, now you've got three smaller pieces that you can just, you know, easily plane or, well, probably not playing this 42, but, you know, it's going to give you three smaller pieces. If anything, if the boards were already flat, but the, you know, they weren't level or weren't even when you clamp them together, this will give you that opportunity to, to reclamp them. Now, obviously you're going to lose some width, so that may not work out for you. I had, well, had considered that. Hopefully oversized. Yeah. Hopefully. Hopefully, as we all do. Hopefully you're 43 and a half and you can rip that inch and a half off when you're done. But yeah, hopefully you're oversized and, uh, and you can rip those into a couple smaller panels and re-glue that back together. If not, I mean, your only option is to flatten it with your router sled, drum sander, or that's about, or make a new top. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's the only thing that I can really say is rip them, rejoint, clamp them up. They look good. 
glue them and glue them up right this time and hopefully everything goes well and you have a flat tabletop. Yeah, if if it's not too much of a of a ridge that's created from, you know, misalignment during glue up, I mean, again, less than I don't know, 16th, even a 16th kind of kind of heavy sometimes, but you can try to feather it off by sanding, but it sounds like to me like it might be more than that and it's significant and you know, your goal is to get everything even as opposed to having having it kind of dip down to the next level and uh yeah i mean you you can feather sand but uh, yeah i get what you're saying david or daniel i'm sorry it's david david i get what you're saying david and i think mm, either router sled or what you said sean which is ripping it down and then reattaching it yeah there's no magic unfortunately it's either cut it and start over make a new top or flatten what you have with the router sled that's a big top so yeah i would it's going to take a while (laughs) yeah you know and if you end up ripping them to three smaller pieces and it ends up making that top too narrow look at milling up some more stock and gluing it onto the edge and and until you get back out to that desired width i mean that's also an option as well yep yep well That was a short one, but I think that we were limited on solutions on that one for David. So hope that helps, David. Hui, what do you got for us? Okay, this one's from Andrew, and he says, Hi, folks. I'm moving in the next year, and I'm hopeful that I can sell many of my current stationary tools and move up to some used industrial-scale equipment. However, I've never purchased equipment that I couldn't transport myself or simply have dropped off with the liftgate service. I am interested to hear any advice regarding the transportation of large tools back to the shop after winning them at auction, far from home, for example. I love my Toyota Tacoma, but I'd be limited to picking up one tool at a time, which would be a real scheduling nightmare. Does one hire riggers to load a truck, have the truck driven to one's own place, and hire riggers to get the stuff off the truck? I don't have a forklift or anything like that yet. You might win it at auction. (laughs) You might win it at auction and use it to go get the equipment. And as much as I would love to, I would rather direct my funds at tools versus material handling equipment. I am simply an enthusiastic amateur looking to get into large equipment for both the fun and the machine's capacity, Andrew. So I moved... Mm, a year ago, but I didn't move my equipment until about mm, seven, eight months ago. And I will say that I had so much stuff. I could have done it myself. I could have asked a whole bunch of folks to help me uh, rented a trailer. I have a trailer, but you know, my the trailer wouldn't have fit like my workbench, my uh, miter saw station, uh, and my CNC machine. So I actually hired a, a local company, uh, muscled up movers <laughs> and they, they had a lift gate. Uh, they wrapped every single piece of equipment up with blankets and used that, uh, shrink wrap stuff. You know, this, you know, what I'm talking about yeah. the packaging wrap stuff. They did a great job. They did a great job and it was worth it. It wasn't the cheapest, but I felt as though it was worth having the peace of mind. The problem with 
a lot of these auctions is that they do not give you options for getting it moved. You've got to figure that out on your own. And in doing so, suddenly a great deal at auction might not be such a great deal when you have to hire somebody to move it. It's not the cheapest, especially if it this stuff is industrial scale equipment. But I would not try to do that myself unless you've had you have experience doing it. There are plenty of heavy equipment movers out there that do this for a living. And a lot of them I know, uh, like for instance, when you buy shingles um, for for your roof, uh, the these these companies are coming out there with an arm that are picking up, you know, heavy pallets of shingles and they have a forklift hanging off the back of that flatbed truck as well. So I would definitely contact some type of rigging, preferably uh, local to where you're winning that auction uh, to get that equipment and do it for you. Um, because unless you've had experience doing it, I would not take that risk and you know try to find a really great deal and make sure you're calculating that shipping cost into it. What about you, Sean? I mean, I know you don't, I, I, first off, I don't have, you know, industrial grade equipment, but I've got some large stuff, you know, have you ever had to move? No, I, I hope to, and maybe in a year or so, but no, everything that I have in my shop, I just opened the garage door and, you know, the freight folks wheeled it in there using their little pallet jack and dropped it down. And then I had to muscle it off of it and set it all up. Uh, I've not had to move, um, so I don't have much experience in this, but I agree with what you're saying. And I would call them just to get a rough quote, if you can, on uh, what that cost is going to be, just to give you an idea uh, going when you're going and purchasing these items. If you know you're gonna, you can always have some rough number on the back of your mind to add on to that. And maybe when you're there, look at purchasing multiple tools at once. So yeah. that you save on the number of trips for the uh, the the truck, um, but unfortunately, you know, I've I don't have much experience with that. Everything is off of a pallet and into a mobile base. Mm-hmm. Um, but yep. there's no way I would attempt at moving anything myself. I, I wouldn't have the equipment, and I'd rather pay someone to <laughs> do the heavy lifting of you know the 600 pound combo machine and all that other the bandsaw, the table saw. Yeah, there's just that's not something that I would want to want to do myself. I wonder what shipping costs have been like now that fuel prices have gone up. I I, I don't want to know. That's that's <laughs> a good that's a good thing to keep in mind. Yeah, yeah. that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But yeah, Andrew, check it out, man. Like I would not do it myself. Absolutely not. I mean, you would have to, you know, rent. Can you go and I'd say this shows my ignorance on this too. Can you rent? at like a U-Haul place and do they have you know, pallet jacks and all those other types of things that you can rent as well? Um, you know, I don't know about pallet jacks, but I do know that I think it's Penske. I think Penske, you can get liftgate uh, yeah, trucks. That's true. That you can rent. Um, but I don't know about, I don't know about pallet jacks i mean you'd need a forklift for some of this stuff yeah he's talking about large equipment so yeah you would need to rent a forklift and a truck mm-hmm. which i know that there are places that would rent you a forklift yeah uh, at least around here there are some heavy machinery rental places that will sell you you know they got cherry pickers and all kinds of stuff 
they would rent you. So you basically have to rent that yourself, know how to drive it and then load it and unload it. So, I mean, that you could also call around and ask about pricing on that kind of stuff too. You know, rent one of the trucks with the lift gate, rent a forklift and, and kind of see what, what that's going to cost you as well. Yeah. Yeah. Calculate that in man. And, you know, just make sure you're getting a good deal on that because the shipping I imagine is not going to be hundreds and hundreds of dollars, I would say. Yes. And it also depends on how far away the auction house is compared to your shop too. Mm -hmm. So hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. And if you're doing that one tool at a time, that's going to get very expensive. Yes. Yes. Cool. Well, all right. It's back to you, man. All right. This is from Scott. Hey, guys, I love the podcast. I learned something new from each episode. Thank you for answering my question and all the hard work you put into your YouTube and podcast. I'm currently working very hard to increase my brand recognition to try and make woodworking a full-time thing. I know none of you have your own full-time woodworking gig, and I feel that is a choice. It seems like you guys could break out full-time. Any advice on how to increase my reach to people to start bringing in more business would be super appreciated. Scott at Tom Rar Woodworks. Well, this is uh, this is a good question. This is not an easy one, so I'm I'm gonna attempt to answer it, and hopefully we can help fill in some holes, and maybe together we will give you something that's useful. But if I were starting out, and this is just my opinion, there's millions of different ways to do this stuff. If I were starting out and trying to build brand recognition and you're trying to sell pieces, obviously, because that's, you're trying to build your brand in order to sell pieces. So I would find, I would post your pieces on, on, um, free platforms like Facebook marketplace and Craigslist. Now, obviously you're not depending on the price and the quality and all that stuff. You're not going to reach, uh, that target audience if you're selling high end furniture. But if you're, if you're into sale boxes or cutting boards or outdoor stuff, or, you know, just look around and see, but Facebook marketplace and Craigslist is where I would start posting that stuff just to potentially get some sales in since they're free and they have eyeballs already on that platform. Second, I would look at opening an Etsy store to not only help sell your pieces, but also this is going to get brand recognition for people finding your products through the search. Etsy is a competitive market, so getting sales to build feedback helps, but it's a crowded marketplace. So it's just one of those things where you you put your products on there. um, You know, you can wait and see what happens. I'm not sure of any any techniques in order to build, um, you know, ranking any any techniques in order to rank better for certain terms. Outside of paying for advertisement, Etsy may not have a whole lot of options for that, but at least it will allow you to build a storefront on Etsy, uh, list your products and list your brand, uh, and then you know get anything that falls from that. I know quite a few folks that have built Etsy, like that have built uh, successful Etsy sites that get lots of sales through it. So that'll get also allow you to look around and see what other folks are selling. But Etsy is a good place for that. Uh, the next uh, next thing I would do is work on your social media like Instagram to build your follower account. Uh, to do that, it's these days it's kind of difficult. Uh, look at other accounts that have a decent amount of followers. See what works for them by looking at their posts uh, and looking at the likes and any other you know feedback that you can get from their posts and the engagement also another number. But those come the, the engagement isn't really as important because that all depends on your you know follower count and all that stuff. Uh, mm-hmm. Obviously, you don't want to just copy them, and but get creative and and make sure to post regularly. Uh, also, one of the important things that Instagram 
that's important to Instagram is that you use all the different post types, reels, stories, posts, videos, whatever else you can do on Instagram these days. Uh, It's best to use all of the features on Instagram. Uh, The algorithm tends to favor accounts that post in the different post types. And the most important thing is that you post regularly. Um, I have only gone backwards in follower count since pre-COVID because I don't post regularly. I'm pretty sure I'll be at zero before long. I mean, I've already, I just keep going backwards. It's insane. Um, Start your own website and update it often so that you're going to show up in search results. This thing is, is pretty important. And that's try to determine when you're posting your projects, look for titles that are going to get the most searches. So let's say you're posting a table, try to give your post a title that people are looking for. And one tool that you can use is Google Trends. Uh, enter a few different search terms and and it's going to tell you how that keyword or that phrase is trending over time. So that's going to help you choose the best keyword that people are looking for. And that's the important. You don't want to just post items on your site that no one is looking for, because until you have traffic to your site, people are only going to find you by search, by clicking on stuff you share on social media. Mm-hmm. So make sure you're <clears throat> you're trying to give the people that are searching results by looking at uh, Google key, the Google trends and finding good keywords. And finally, and this is some uh, self-promotion here, but it's I'm not doing it just to promote my site, but share your work on other sites like simplecove.com. This yep. may like sound like I'm trying to promote my site, but it helps because you can include links back to your site on your simplecove.com profile, which is going to help build a backlink to your site. And plus, when you post your projects on the site within the post, you can link back to your site in the description. Or if you're selling the item, you can link to your Etsy store um, and you can it, the site allows you to help build backlinks. Uh, and plus, it's going to allow you to your projects to show up in search terms because my site has been around for six, seven years and it's built some sort of some sort of quote unquote authority. So items uh, rank a little bit easier. Doesn't mean they're going to be at the top. Um, but within those, you can link to back to your Etsy store, back to your website and also back to your Instagram and it helps build brand recognition. Mm -hmm. Uh, the last thing I will say before I pass it off to Hui is it takes time uh, and you have to remain dedicated to putting, putting the time in to build your brand with the posts and, you know, and sharing it and doing the things to help build all of these different platforms that I mentioned above and it just takes time. So that in a nutshell is how I think that you could help with brand recognition. Did I miss anything? We no, no great there. Um, I would like to also emphasize the whole time thing because when I started all this uh, very much like you, I was just doing stuff for myself and for my family and very close friends. I mean, very close friends. I did not do it for most friends, but except for the closest of friends mainly because I just was not confident in my own skill to take on something that someone else was willing to either pay me or at least reimburse me for materials. Yeah. That being said, look at those types of pieces, right? The pieces that you're making for your close family and friends as what I what what's known as speculative pieces, right? So the a spec piece is the idea that you're building something that you think somebody might like. So 
take on projects not that only one particular kind of person or demographic is going to like, but that a broad audience is going to think, oh, wow, that's really nice. And man, that would just look wonderful in my house. So a lot because a lot of times you'll see and and not to again, this is not bashing YouTubers or content creators, but a lot of content creators and YouTubers are doing projects and things that are very unique to what their taste is or unique to their house. And that isn't going to be as attractive to a broader audience. So uh, here's a great example. I made a expandable table. It's a round table and it had this reverse uh, veneered pattern, reverse diamond pattern. And when I first saw it, my wife wanted it and I thought, oh man, like I'm not really like kind of, I'm not really into it, but my wife wants it. And she basically said, no, no, no. It's like super popular right now. This kind of look, this sort of modern look is just really in right now. And I said, okay, fine. You want it? Not a problem. And my thought was, oh gosh, like, you know, I'm going to be posting about this and everybody's going to like think this is just silly. Well, guess what? It was a whole bunch of like, and and I'm not, you know, trying to uh, say this was a bad thing, but a whole bunch of like women actually contacted me saying, oh man, I love this piece. And, you know, do you have others? Would you be able to make it for me? And I said, no, because I don't want to make it again. But see, that's that's where it comes in. It's like, this isn't about my taste, right? If you're trying to get more client work, it's not about your taste. It's about what is attractive to your clients. And sometimes, keep this in mind, when you get clients, sometimes you're going to be building things that you don't particularly like. So just keep that in mind and be very cognizant of that, is that sometimes getting your name out there is building and doing things that you might not particularly like, but that you have the skill set for. Does that make sense? Yeah, and that's a fantastic point. And thank you for bringing that up. That's that's amazing. Yeah, it, it's you're right, 100%. You could have the best brand recognition in the world, but if you make pieces that other folks don't necessarily like, or they don't, you know, don't they won't fit in their homes or uh, yeah, they're not going to buy it. So that that's yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. It's it's brand recognition and making the stuff that people want to purchase. Right. So yeah, that's a fantastic point. Yeah. Are you making pieces for other woodworkers to ogle over because of the crazy joinery and mechanisms that you use? Or are you making pieces for homeowners and people that will use it will enjoy? Anyway. Yep. yep. That's those are all excellent points. All right. Well, I think I've got my last question now, and that is from Scott. Interesting question. And also he acquired some really awesome stuff. So thank you for the great podcast. I listen to it all the time and get so much out of it. Well, thank you, Scott, for listening. Uh, I just received a free Delta Unisaw with sliding table. That's awesome, Scott. Like particularly the Delta Unisaw had an amazing fence, a very unique fence. So I hope you're enjoying that. Two questions on the table saw. This saw does not have a riving knife. Thoughts on adding one? Yes, I would add one. And I would look at the shark guard. Are you familiar with this? Have you ever heard of shark guard? Yes. So I would look at shark shark guard because they make aftermarket riving knives, splitters, and dust shrouds 
that fit over the riving knife and splitter. Uh, they also have like a couple of uh, options for anti-kickback paws. I think uh, the saw stop has it, although I haven't used it on mine. Um, but yeah, I would, I've, I've become so used to having a riving knife that I would absolutely recommend getting a riving knife, an aftermarket riving knife for the Delta Unisaw. And I believe the Shark Guard makes a an aftermarket riving knife for the Delta Unisaw. The other um, less expensive sort of splitter or riving knife is the micro jig uh, MJ splitter. Oh, did I take, so go ahead. You, <laughs> you go ahead and talk about the MJ splitter. No, you talk no, 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 you go ahead. You go ahead. Anyway, it, it it's not a riving knife. It's permanent. It, it's not, but the splitter, these like little tabs, um, there are two of them and you position them so that they are inserted into a zero clearance insert. And you will have to make that either out of like a HD, uh, uh, what is it? High density polyethylene, HDPE, or uh, I've seen people make it out of Corian, like uh, zero clearance inserts out of Corian and using like um, uh, thread, not threaded inserts, but uh, set screws, set screws. Yeah. To uh, in specific areas to level out that zero clearance insert. So there, that's a little bit more of a DIY way of doing it. And I, on my old Grizzly, I had the Microjig MJ splitter because when I had bought my Grizzly table saw from a used from a cabinet shop, they never put the riving knife in. It came with a riving knife, but they never put it in. And that cabinet shop lost it somewhere. Uh, and so when I bought the saw, I it didn't come with it. I was too cheap at the time to order it from Grizzly because I think it was like 50 bucks. Um, and I think the MJ splitter, I got it from one of the woodworking shows for like $20, which by the way, the wood woodworking shows are sometimes the best places to get, uh, stuff because usually they're, um, one, you don't have to pay for shipping. Um, and two, it, they're usually discounted, uh, a little bit at those woodworking shows. So look at the MJ splitter. That is more of a DIY sort of solution. But if you want something that is really designed to fit in it, uh, then I would look at the shark guard. All right. Did I take away everything from you? I'm sorry. Mm, nope. Almost. Here's, oh. Here is my idea. Is okay. Buy a replacement for your Delta Unisol. <laughs> <laughs> Wait a minute. Does the Delta Unisol come with a riving knife? Oh, I don't know. I, that, that may show my ignorance. I, I don't know. That is a good question. Because, I um, mean, while looking on Amazon at those little MJ splitters, I noticed there's all kinds of Delta... Uh, like uh, riving thin curve riving knives for the Beesmeyer and yeah. OEM replacement. But uh, the, you bring up a valid point. I, I don't know if the Unisol came with one or not. So that may be know. a dumb recommendation. I don't know either. But, you know, Unisol, the Delta Unisol has span spans over many years. So maybe the model he has doesn't, or maybe the model he has did. It just, when you got the saw, that didn't, you know, it got lost or whatnot. But definitely check in that because check into that because if it does have the option, then uh, the OEM riving knife is going to fit in it the best. Yeah, that that's the thing is they made yeah, they made the Unisol all the way back in the fifties. I mean, it's it's hard to when you just say Unisol, it's hard. For, I guess it's kind of hard for us to determine, you know, the year of it and and, and heck if you can even purchase one for it. But if, if that's not an option, then I would agree with both of it, of what we, 
we said is on that, the uh, MJ splitter and the shark. Okay, so the next part of his question is, I want to rebuild my shop around this saw. Right now, my table simply butts up to my workbench, which is, which is also my outfeed table. I would like to attach the bench outfeed table to the saw, but the floor is not level, the garage shop. Would you build to level? For example, level the saw and build everything to that plane or build to square with the floor. So I think what he's talking about there is, would you level it to the floor or level it to the saw, correct? Yep, that's how I took it. That's how I took it. I would level it to the saw. Agreed. And the way I've done it is, you know, I've got I've got my table saw and I built my outfeed assembly table and it's it also is butt up against the table saw. And I've got these these leveling feet. They're called footmasters. And I put those at the bottom of my outfeed assembly table. And they're great because I had the same setup in my old shop, which was not level. And I was able to get it pretty much level and parallel with the table saw slightly below the the work surface of the table saw because you want to be able to you know, rip and uh, the material just feed onto the outfit assembly table easily without catching the edge of it. And then in my new shop, I did the same thing. And that floor is not level either. So yeah, uh, that's what I would do. I, I agree 100%. My garage slopes big time. So what I just did was made it level to the saw, the outfit table. I mean, I made it, yeah, level with the saw. The saw obviously is not level in the garage right i've not had any need for it to be you know level 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 just that it's even with the saw yeah that's my vote yeah and it's and it's worked well for me and i imagine it's worked equally as well for you yeah 100 percent. i've not needed it to be any other way i agree well i think that is it am i right about that are we all done you are right wow that was that was like rapid fire so yeah. let's talk about what's going on in our shops uh, Sean, what do you got, man? Well, I'm still working on the miter saw station cabinetry, and I finally broke down all 11 sheets of plywood. That was interesting. Seven mm -hmm. sheets of three-quarter, four sheets of quarter-inch. Got the base cabinets built, and now I'm getting ready to start cutting all the pieces for the drawer parts so I can get those assembled. Mm -hmm. um, and then install How are you going to assemble them? The pocket, uh, pocket hole screws. Yeah, I'm going to put some cherry fronts on them so you won't see it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's it's going well. It's just, yeah, we're kind of cold here, but then warm. Today is 78, and, which is insane. And then tomorrow is supposed to be like, I think in the 40s or something like that. So it's, mm -hmm. I'm ready for it to just be full-time warm um, mm -hmm. because, you know, I have to, this, this is way off topic, but... I park outside, so I have to open the door to charge my vehicle. And then, you know, I have to let all the heat out. So I turn that off and leave the door cracked for, you know, four, five, six hours for the car to charge. So I'm just like, I'll just leave the heat off. So I only pretty much work on, on the weekends. Uh, mm -hmm. So it's taking me a little bit longer than I'd like. Uh, slightly off topic, but some somewhat in topic, considering, you know, fuel costs are so high lately. Um, 
is, is that an issue having your car, your electric car outside to charge? Is that perfectly safe if it like is starts to rain or something like that? Yeah. Yep. Yep. Okay. Yeah. I've had it out in rain, snow, sleet. Um, yeah, it's, yeah, it's perfectly fine. I'm completely ignorant about it. There's no, I, you know, I was the same way. I'm, I'm the, I was the exact same way. And I was even like, dang, can I, can I drive this through a uh, car wash? And I was like, well, wait a minute. I drive in the freaking rain. <laughs> no, it's just not something you think of, but yeah, it's perfectly, perfectly fine. Cause all the charging stations are outside and you know, so yeah, it's, it's fine. Can you not just crack your garage door and just slip it under or. Oh, I can, issue? but I got to leave it cracked and it's got to charge it. It, it takes several hours if I run it down mm-hmm. to charge. So I'm char- the door's cracked for like four or five, six hours. And by that time, mm-hmm. the heat's gone out. So yeah. I just, you know, it, it another few weeks and it's going to be full time warm enough here for me to not have to worry about heating the garage up. But I wonder if there's ways to externally mount those charges. I mean, there's got to be because, I mean, when you go to a charging station um, on the road, those are outside you don't go into a garage right so yeah there but in order for me to do it outside i mean i have to cut in the side of the house the vinyl siding mm-hmm. or put something up over it and if i sell the house in a couple of years that's going to be an eyesore unless the yeah. person buying it has an electric vehicle so i just chose it's literally right by the door i mean it's in heck it's in my last you couple of youtube videos you can see the charge the ford charger on the wall but yeah yeah it's uh so i just leave it in there right by the door and crack the door and plug it up and then leave it there for a few hours and then I'm good for a week. Does, does it again, slightly on topic, but <laughs> off topic, does it get, uh, does the charger get in the way with the rest of your shop? No, I have a wall mount that I just reel it up and, and, you know, hang it on the wall. I have it underneath my clamp rack and doesn't get in the way at all. Nice. Nice. Yeah. I got lucky. You know, it has to do with the garage and the garage is a shop. So, you know, yeah, absolutely. Every- it works. <laughs> it's near clamps. That's woodworking. <laughs> yeah there you go well, that's all cool, i got man. going on more of that stuff what about you uh, i'm doing cabinet work too i've got a double dresser and by double dresser i mean just two side by side uh columns of drawers or yeah columns of drawers um and, and it's a six drawer double dresser i just got the face frames on i uh, about a week ago yeah about a week ago and i just hadn't had time to yeah, I, i've been so busy at work that I hadn't had time to mill up all the drawer materials. Let me ask you, what, what, uh, you've got the Craig jig, right? No, I have the Mosca, M-A-S, Masca, M-A-S-C-C-A. I've never heard of that. Masca, is that, a, pocket is that a relatively new one? I think they're new, newer. Um, it's their, it's really, really well made. Now, full disclosure, they did send it to me, but I wouldn't mm-hmm. be, I wouldn't lie about it over a hundred dollar jig. So, um, if it wasn't great, I wouldn't say it. It's just a hundred dollars. I wouldn't ruin my reputation, whatever little I have over a free jig, but it is a really well-made jig. It's aluminum, all aluminum. Mm. Um, it's got a little extension rods on the sides that go out. It's got brass, uh, thumb screws for adjusting the pocket hole jig. It's M A S S C A Masca, Matt, however they say it. It's, I mean, it's, it's a, a well-built pocket hole jig and works great. I've, you know, drilled hundreds of pocket holes so far, maybe a hundred, 125. And it's great. Are you sure? Yeah. I think 117 may be the final answer. 
but no, it's well, great. the reason the reason is I've got the Craig Foreman and I I tested it with doing some face frames and I, I ended up joining the face frames together with the domino. And the reason was because, you know, I've got these like thin, they're not thin. Well, they are thin, not thin in thickness, but like in, I'm sorry, narrow uh, face frame materials, about an inch and a half and two inches. Mm -hmm. And what I noticed is that like, I got a lot of shift when I was attaching those face frames because, Mm -hmm. you know, it's lighter material and it's going into hardwood. And I was just sort of curious if there, if if you kind of experienced the same thing. I haven't done face frames. All okay. I've done is the just the base. I'm not doing a face frame, so I don't have any feedback for you, unfortunately, on that. Okay, okay. I know that the castle is, but the castle's castle jig is like very expensive, fifteen hundred dollar machine that's equivalent to like the foreman. But uh, but yeah, I ended up because I was just doing a test piece. I I had actually never attached face frames with pocket holes, mm-hmm. so I tested it on on some scrap. I was like, man, I can't get these to like. I don't want to have to sand all this down, you know, from three quarter inch less than that because I I was you know was getting some. Uh, screw shift you know like when you're clamp screwing it together i got a little bit of shift what about using uh, the domino for that so i did use a domino that's what i ended up doing that's what i ended up doing yeah and uh and attached cool. that to the uh to the carcass and so with that i also did more on the walnut that i had for a dining table i ripped it down using the track saw because it's such a long piece that I, I didn't want to have to, it, there was a significant amount of bowing mm-hmm. on this walnut. And so rather than having potato chip in and potato chip out and work in one end, then work in the other end on the joiner, I just, I just ripped it with the track saw. So I did that as well. So that's all dressed and, and still, well, I guess technically it's acclimating, but it's been in my shop for long enough that I think I can go ahead and just edge join it now and, and get it together. But um, I did want to get some sample pieces for coloring that I to send to the client for the, so that they can choose the finish. So on the yeah. walnut itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Walnut. It, Cause I, I've got a couple of different colors of, of, uh, of dyes that mm-hmm. I want her to choose from and whether or not she's going to go like an oil finish or, go for um, a water-based conversion varnish. My guess is that she's probably going to want to go with an oil finish uh, very much so that she very much wants to get that like nice, deep, uh, dark look from walnut. Mm -hmm. And I think you're just going to get more of that from like an oil finish than you will, say, a water-based conversion varnish. So are you staining then applying those two finishes or dyeing and then applying those two finishes? I am, yes. Cool. Yeah, I am. You're going to keep it, you're going to stain or dye it with a dark walnut just to keep it that color over the years? Correct. Because there is, while this is really great material and it's all straight grain, there's uh, some pieces have just the slightest amount of sapwood. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if if you've got a full field of majority, that dark, rich walnut, and you got just that little sliver of like sapwood and you're like, oh, yeah, like that, you know, so I'm going to use a walnut dye to get it all nice and even same color. That's cool. That's some good looking lumber. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I think that wraps it up for this show. 
Please remember this podcast is here to answer questions from the woodworking community. So if you have woodworking questions, please send them through the podcast contact page at woodshoplifepodcast.com. You can also DM us through Instagram at woodshoplife. Make sure you leave your name in both instances. Uh, We would also like to thank everyone who has left us a five-star review on iTunes. It really helps us in the search rankings. And of course, we truly appreciate the support and the feedback. And you can reach me at alabamawoodworker.com. All the links to my social media are on my website. Sean, where can you be found? You can find me at simplecove.com forward slash Sean to see my projects and at simplecove on Instagram. And you can see a whole bunch of other really great inspiration at simplecove.com. Except for wheeze. Hey, (laughs) hey. No, wait a minute. No, I have one project on there, don't I? No. That's fine, though. That's fine. Yeah, I was trying to get you to post one so I could interview interview you for my old podcast, but never happened. I'm sorry. Maybe some man. We got a, we got like a gigantic windstorm coming through, so I don't know if you can hear, but like there's just howling wind going through. It's here like, around my house. Yeah, really. It's oh, always man. nuts. Yeah. Oh man. Well, um, great. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you in a couple of weeks. Yeah. Hopefully, we didn't bore you with Guy. He'll be back next episode. But yeah, thanks for listening. All right. Talk to you later. Bye. Bye. Oh, wait. That's on me to stop it.